Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. I'm here with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Today, our guest is Dr. Abraham Kuravilla. Dr. Kuravilla is Senior Research Professor of Preaching and Pastoral Ministries at Dallas Theological Seminary. He is the author of several books, including Privilege to Text, A Theological Hermeneutics for Preaching. Dr. Kuravilla, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Delight to be here. Abe, you know that uh, I love your work, and uh, I want our listeners to get to know you better and to hear about your your passion for uh, text-based preaching. Uh, so why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? I think you're a fascinating, very colorful personality. Tell us about your background and about your work. Well, I'm ethnically Indian, uh, but I was actually born in Kuwait, where my father was working. And when he retired, we moved back to India. I lived there for about 10-something years, came to the U.S. for school. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly my medical stuff. I have a, another side to my life. Yes. And then I've stayed here ever since, 35 mm-hmm. plus years now. So you're a dermatologist yes. and skin, professor. Skin, hair, and nails. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Tremendous. Um, can you give us, uh, Dr. Kovila, a survey of your books on preaching, just for the benefit of our li- listeners, um, maybe even some commentaries that you've written? Uh, My first one was my dissertation from uh, University of Aberdeen, and that whole process started me off on trying to discover how to find valid application from texts. Uh, I'm still reminded of a a devotional that I once read. It's it's part of a common series that's found in the foyer of many of our churches. Mm It was a story about Acts 28 where Paul was shipwrecked in Malta and helped the sailors pick up sticks to start a fire. So this devotional recommended Mm -hmm. that we too should be keen on doing menial jobs in churches because if Paul can pick up sticks for a fire, of course we... Now the thing about that was the devotional conveniently forgot that a snake came out of the cord of woods and bit the hapless apostle. (laughs) So I could, being the clever guy that I am, go entirely the other way and say, don't ever do menial (laughs) jobs in churches. In other words, very dangerous. Scripture becomes your life. Yes. Scripture becomes a wax nose as far as application is concerned. You can make it say whatever you want. So this is what drove me to work on a dissertation that uh, looked at how to move from text to praxis. That is the title of the dissertation. Since then, I've continued to work on that yes. topic. And so you're, uh, I think, one of not too many who've not just written extensively on preaching, but you've actually written commentaries. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the, the books that you've written commentaries on and your approach in commentary writing. The whole enterprise is premised upon an understanding that authors and speakers do things with what they say. That's Mm -hmm. the whole field of pragmatics in language philosophy. And I think that has been neglected in commentary writing. It's particularly poignant for preachers because we're looking for how to make application from texts, how to change lives with God's word. And unless you catch what the author is doing, uh, there cannot be valid application. If I may be permitted to give a trivial Mm -hmm. example. If your wife, whom I spot sitting there, tells you, Andreas, Mm -hmm. The trash is full. You could file that 
piece of information somewhere in the crevices of your brain, but mm-hmm. that would only put you in the doghouse. Yes. Now, you being a little smarter than that might say, well, the trash is full, so I'm going to Walmart and get myself, get my wife a larger trash can. That would be even more days in the doghouse. For you. In other words, unless you understand what the author or speaker is saying with what he or she is saying, there yep. cannot be valid application. So that's what drove me to look at biblical books, pericope by pericope, looking for textual clues primarily literary clues to what Mm -hmm. the author is doing with what he's saying so that preachers may have a basis for moving to valid applications. Absolutely. Not just asking what are they saying, but asking the question, what are they doing? doing? Language always works that way. Yes. In speech and in writing. Yes. And so a privilege to text. Um, What's your argument? That that? was an outworking of my dissertation. It's an updating Mm -hmm. uh, thereof. And it was, um, uh, some of it is, all. Uh, if I can give another example. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know the story of First Samuel 15, where God asks uh, Saul to kill all the Amalekites, mm-hmm. uh, the prophet Samuel takes the message to Saul, asking him to kill all the Amalekites, and he prefaces God's command to Saul with these words, 15.1, I believe. Now here the voice of the words of the Lord. That English translation you will find in no English Bible except the King James. Mm -hmm. But that's how the Hebrew is. The voice of the words of the Lord. Commentators, scholars, translators thought Mm -hmm. it was redundant and made it something like, hear the words or word of the Lord. Hold that thought for a second. Mm -hmm. Samuel goes to Saul, tells him that. Saul says, okay, but he doesn't do what God tells him to do. He saves the best of the animals and the chief of the Mm -hmm. humans, probably as trophies for himself. Later on, he reports back to to Samuel. Samuel asks him, did you do what God told you to do? And he says, of course I did that. And then Samuel issues this memorable indictment. What Mm -hmm. then is the bleating of the sheep and the lowing of cattle that I hear? Now, it's not bleating and lowing in the Hebrew. It's voice. So did you catch what the author Mm -hmm. is doing here? God is actually poking a finger into my sternum and asking me, which voice are you listening to? Mm -hmm. Mine Mm -hmm. or the seductions and titillations of the world? So I just want to make the point that Mm -hmm. translators, scholars, are not thinking in terms of what the author is doing. They're more interested in what happened. And of course, cattle yes. lowed and sheep bleated, so lowing and bleating. Right. Mm-hmm. So without privileging the text, they're actually privileging what happened behind the text. Yeah. And to be provocative, I usually tell my students, I'm not interested in what happened. Behind. I'm interested in what the Holy Spirit said happened. Yes. I need mm-hmm. to pre- pay attention to the text, its nuances yeah. of language, its filigrees of structure, because others are doing something with what they are saying and how they are saying it. And if I don't attune my ears to that, I'm going to miss the winks and the yes. emphases and the stresses that we mm-hmm. convey yes. to each other in, 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 in speaking. Well, I love the fact that, you know, as, as, as one who has the ears of other preachers or you can speak to them, uh, we can ally with you as biblical scholars because it seems like what you're implying is you really need to to uh, to look at the original languages in some case and uh, the the translations sometimes are not helping. Yes, that's they're actually very true. often obscuring the meaning. So we can't 
blindly rely yeah. on translations. Yeah. And often, you know, when you translate something like poetry, uh, you, you're going to get yourself in a big mess unless you're very careful because the word plays and the alliterations sure. and everything is going to be lost. Some of that loss you just cannot help as you go from one translation to yeah. another. And often translations go for readability. Yeah. And so it becomes yeah. more a matter of smoothing out. Yeah. And so I, think, edges, I so. think students, preachers, uh, I think they need to be well-grounded in the biblical languages to be able to look out for themselves as to what exactly is going on in this mm. text in its original tongues. Absolutely. Uh, and, of course, uh, your approach also um, implies a high view of Scripture, that uh, the words of the text matter. Indeed. Uh, and it couldn't be said in any other way. Yes, God chose and those words for a thoroughly recent. Yes. Uh, and, and the text is pointing us a certain direction, and we ought not to substitute our own ideas exactly. for what the text is pointing exactly. us Even toward. Even retellings. Uh, many preachers are in the habit of retelling a story and drawing some kind of a principle from that. And I'm right. saying, well, if God's word could be retold in some other ways or enacted or sung in other ways, and still you could get the same meaning out of there, then... That renders plenary verbal inspiration redundant. Yes. Unnecessary. I've sometimes noticed that, you know, you might have uh, preachers um, preaching from one of the Gospels and, and maybe a story Jesus told, and, and Jesus actually uses an illustration himself. And some preachers would actually substitute their own illustration okay. when Jesus already gives one, which almost seems to imply that they have a better illustration <laughs> than the one Jesus had. We had in uh, Dallas Seminary, we have a series of lectures called the Nathan Meyer Lectures. It's a spiritual life. Uh, one year, a speaker preached on, on one of the days that he was assigned to preach, he preached on Genesis 26 through 28, the story of Jacob mm -hmm. cheating Esau of his birth, uh, not his birthright, his blessing, mm -hmm. in cahoots with his mother. So this person started off with an allegory of, he was playing a first-person monologue of he's James, who just cheated his brother Eric, and their parents are Ike and Becky, who <laughs> own the largest energy resource company in Texas. And mm -hmm. James had just cheated his brother off his blessing, mm -hmm. and he was found out, and now he's escaping to Fairbanks, Alaska. The entire story was that. Uh, the speaker is assuming that there is some kind of... An, this may not be where you want to go, but I, I, that there's some kind of a mm -hmm. big idea in the text that can be captured. Yes. The shell of the text can be discarded. I can put a new sh shell to it and still convey the same big idea. Mm -hmm. There's something awfully wrong in that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's exactly where I was going to go. Uh, <laughs> you must have uh, you know, peeked into my script here because uh, I was going to... Um, mentioned that uh, this whole big idea approach uh, in preaching has uh, uh, many adherents, uh, I think partly due to the influence of people like Haddon Robinson and, so. and others. And uh, I know that uh, you've previously expressed some concerns about that. And so I would love for you, because I concur with you, uh, I'd love for you to explain to our listeners the background to this approach. What is it? What is this big idea approach? And then if you could elaborate a bit on, on you know, why you think that, that there's some serious uh, problems with that approach. Uh, about a year ago, I think it was, that I published this article mm -hmm. in JETS, which uh, you had read through. Mm -hmm. 
And I did quite a bit of studying of the antecedents of this, digging up archival recordings made at Dallas Seminary where Haddon Robinson and mm-hmm. Don Sunukin and the others, many, many practitioners of big idea thinking, uh, actually developed their schemes. And they were all children of their time, so I, I can see why they did what they did. Uh, in, a, in an era where modernism was creeping up and the Bible was not given its due, um, they were saying that the Bible does say something. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they were all, most of the movers and shakers of big ideaism were classical rhetoricians. Uh, all had higher degrees in classical rhetoric, speech. Mm-hmm. And Now, the problem with that, it's got a lot of good benefits to have a higher degree in classical rhetoric. The problem with that is that classical rhetoric never knew anything except topical preaching or speaking. They never knew anything about taking an inspired text and expounding it. So for all of them, speaking was primarily you have a core idea slash proposition, mm-hmm. which you explain and you prove and you apply. Mm-hmm. They never knew anything about taking a text and expounding that as a form of address. Especially if you have different genres. Yeah. Theirs was never text-based. They had three kinds of preaching. Right. Uh, speaking, one was forensic in the court of law where you, you mm-hmm. were advocating for your client. Mm-hmm. The other one was, uh, that's forensic. Then there is the legislative, mm-hmm. which was you're arguing in a parliament that, hey, we should go to war against uh, Philip of Macedonia or whoever. Right. And third one was the epideictic rhetoric, which was in funerals, raising the profile of this mm-hmm. person who lies here before right. us and he was such a great person or vice versa. So a text never showed up in their lives for orations. Uh, definitely not an inspired text. Right. So that has been completely lacking. And therefore classical rhetoricians still tended to use this big idea proposition approach put forth by uh, classical rhetoric. Very helpful and to understand. that into that, that was the paradigm. Underlying that yeah. approach. And my uh, concern, my problems, my gripe with that is simply that uh, two things. One, that a text can be losslessly and exhaustively condensed into a the few words of a big idea proposition. Mm-hmm. So a large body of text can be condensed losslessly, exhaustively. And if it can, the natural consequences, then what I need to preach is that distillate. Mm-hmm. So that's my problem. Distilling the text, preaching the distillate. And so they may get the big idea correct, but they're they're still losing a lot of the nuances. Yes, yes. I mean, it, the big idea is simply just a reduction of the text. Yes. You could not substitute one for the other. It may be a convenient summary and yeah. helpful in Pragmatic some ways. Yes. way of organizing but, the sermon. But you can't just say, okay, I'm going to get rid of this and then preach the text, which preach the big idea, which several of them have known to have said. You're not preaching the text, you're preaching the idea. And right. to me, the idea is a concoction, their concoction. Right. So that's that's the problem. And of course, privilege the text is the title of your book. Yes. So how do you do that? How do you not just reductionistically yeah. reduce the text to a big idea, yeah. but how do you preach all the nuances? Yeah. And there is also a tendency in big idea-ism, if my family <laughs> call it that, that most of the text is simply how the author is saying something. And right. the fact that the how doesn't change the what. I think that's a very mistaken understanding of language. 
how you say something always changes the what. Maybe, maybe a lot, maybe a little, but you change a single word of anything, it changes what you're saying. Mm-hmm. How you say things does, does change what you're saying. For instance, if I give you a seven-word sentence, I never said you stole my wallet. Let me say it to you seven different ways. Mm-hmm. I never said you stole my wallet. 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 The same seven words, how I said it makes it seven different things. I've Uh said seven different things just because of how I said it. So the text as a whole is important. Every word of the text is important. It's not just some rhetorical flim-flam or gaudy glitter, just Uh the how. That that doesn't change the what. No, the hows contribute to the what is being said. So in essence, you are saying that many of us in our preaching are insufficiently biblically grounded. We have another primary framework, whether it's contemporary culture, our own idea about the text, maybe some topical concern, anything but actually paying attention to the text. In fact, if I if I push it further back, I think I would probably put the bulk of the blame on the shoulders of people like us, Bible scholars. Because I think this whole idea of pragmatics and authorial doing has been neglected. The example being the first Samuel 15, even Bible mm-hmm. translators are not thinking in those terms. So how can I blame the humble homiletician mm-hmm. if scholars are being negligent in that? Well, in defense of biblical scholars, you Good for you, would... Andreas. <laughs> Present company <laughs> exempted. <laughs> <to> say that. <laughs> uh, you talk about the importance of the pericope, meaning the basic literary unit. unit. Uh, being the the proper uh, place to start in preaching. Now, uh, certainly, uh, I'm sure you would agree that biblical scholars, of course, uh, they know that pericope are important as a framework for interpretation. Uh, but it seems like uh, somehow that hasn't sufficiently trickled down to many preachers. Uh, would you say? That it's not so much that scholars don't recognize the importance of pericope, it's that preachers often... No, I I don't think that's the issue. I think scholars are not recognizing the issue of pragmatics, of Mm -hmm. authorial doings, looking at the text for what is the author doing, what are the literary clues, the traces that the author is leaving, the the wordplay on voice, for instance. Uh, Many of these things like that are missed in many texts Mm -hmm. that I... At least in the previous generation, I think uh, with with, uh, more of an emphasis... And again, it's a it's a smaller uh, group, but if uh, on speech act theory, yes. you'd probably be somewhat congruent and right? relevance theory and discourse yes. analysis. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Those, those, I, I try to incorporate all of them into yes. simply saying what is the author doing with what he's saying. So these multiple facets of language philosophy, I'm integrating into what is the author doing, and I and I think for just as an example, it takes me about two and a half, three years to write a commentary on your average sized mm-hmm. book. I don't think a pastor preaching weekly has time for that, mm-hmm. to study a book in that as that way. 
so I so so my question then is why don't we have commentaries mm-hmm. that do that to help pastors? Uh, what has what have we been doing for the last two thousand years that we have not yeah. paid attention to authorial to pick out pericope pericope? What's the other doing here? What's the other doing here? What's your that's a great I, way to call a to call for uh, better commentaries yes. that yes. that that engaging a close reading of the text, uh, in with reference to the biblical languages. I, I think that's absolutely critical yeah. because, in, in my opinion, this is what the text was given for mm. to change my life so that I look more like my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if that is the primary reason for giving mm-hmm. scripture, every other reason I would say is secondary. And unfortunately, that primary reason has been the one that's most neglected. Yeah. As opposed to many commentaries dumping tons of background information uh, in some cases, you know, irrelevant background information, and that ends up really superseding that task of, of, of a close reading of the yes, text. Yes, indeed. And, and quite a lot of focus on systematic and biblical theology, not so much on what I call the thrust of each pericope is the pericopal theology. Yes. What what is being done in this particular thank you for joining us today at biblical foundations for more information please visit the center for biblical studies at midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu for further resources please also visit biblicalfoundations.org please join us again next time at the biblical foundations podcast